GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com The Economist Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbiyi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Can you tell the difference between AI-generated deepfakes and real images and videos? Well, I thought I could too, but they are becoming harder and harder to detect, and by extension, harder to stop. And to the horror of Liverpool fans the world over, the football club's manager, Jurgen Klopp, has announced he's stepping down. He's run out of energy, apparently. Our columnist explains why being the boss really is so tiring. But first... Tension that's been building in Senegal for weeks has come to a head, and in the country's parliament yesterday, it was chaos. Opposition lawmakers rushed the speaker's platform, trying to stop debate over a motion to keep President Macky Sall in office. This is a constitutional coup, says one. In the end, police in riot gear entered the chamber and forcibly removed some lawmakers who had been blocking the vote. All this is really out of character for Senegal, a stable democracy in a region where those are hard to maintain. Mr. Saul's second and final constitutionally allowed term is up, and he said he wouldn't stand again. But he's cancelled the upcoming election, and now it won't happen until December. And that has infuriated the people who were due to vote in three weeks. Protests broke out in front of the National Assembly. They're planning on keeping the, the power for, for, more, for another six months. But it's just a beginning. It's just a beginning. They're going to go on and on and on and on. We don't know. So we just, everything we want is a fair election. Those protests were met with tear gas. Tensions are now extremely high in Senegal. Kinley Salmon is an Africa correspondent at The Economist. After the vote last night, it looks almost certain that President Macky Sall is going to stay in office well beyond the end of his elected mandate. He was meant to leave office on April 2nd, and, and he no longer will. That's pretty damning in itself. You know, opponents are, are claiming this is effectively a constitutional coup by the president. There were you know, violent clashes on Sunday. One presidential candidate out protesting was arrested in the protests. On Monday, you know, here in Dakar, where I am, mobile internet was cut. You know, motorbikes, which are popular with young protesters, were banned outright. And a television station that has a sort of temerity to be a bit critical was just shut down. So this is now a really profound democratic crisis in Senegal. 
So let's wind back a bit here. What's what's underneath this claim of a constitutional coup? On Saturday, to general kind of gobsmackness in the country, President Macky Sall did a short speech on national television. J'ai signé le décret 2024-106 du 3 février 2024. And in that sort of highly legalistic speech, effectively announced that presidential elections would be delayed. He didn't even say the words exactly. He just said, I'm cancelling the decree that announced the formation of the electoral body with a new decree, leaving it sort of to listeners to try to figure out what the enormous implications of all this were. This is the first time that elections have been postponed in Senegal. And this is really a rare event for a country like Senegal. I mean, we've seen in West Africa coups and and instability in other parts, places like Burkina Faso and Mali. But Senegal really is a place of stability. It's a place with a reputation for democracy, with solid economic growth. It's one of, meant to be, one of Africa's stars in many ways. So it's a, it's a, it's a really worrying turn. Mr. Sall's justification was that there is allegations of corruption made against the Constitutional Council. That's the body that sort of determines who can actually run for president. And Mr. Sall says, you know, we need time to resolve this dispute between the National Assembly, which has launched an inquiry, and the Constitutional Council. And he now, in effect, seems to have got his way after the scenes in Parliament last night. You know, he's sticking around. And what, in turn, is behind his claim of uh, of corruption in the Constitutional Council? Well, if you've listened to us talk about Senegal in the past, you might think it would be because the council barred probably the leading opposition candidate, Usman Sonko, because of a defamation conviction in a case one might note was brought by a government minister. Sonko's also in jail on, on separate insurrection or fomenting insurrection charges. He says all of that's politically motivated. Uh, and that is all still there, but this latest drama centers more on the fact that the council also blocked the candidacy of, of Karim Wad. He's the son of a, a former president, and they didn't let him run on the basis that he, when he applied to run, still had dual nationality. And it's Wad's political party that have made the allegations of corruption against the council, and they've been pushing as well for this delay. What do you make of that claim then, that he is trying to run a cleaner, clearer election here by sticking around in post for the better part of a year? Mr. Sell wants to sort of pose as someone who's avoiding a crisis and, and standing up for democracy. But in reality, he's pretty unconvincing as a sort of democratic savior. He has flirted himself with a third term for an extended period and only kind of belatedly ruled it out. He has been accused by the opposition of using the justice system to block rivals. Karim Wad was blocked back in 2019, along with another major candidate. Usman Sonko now, you know, has had legion of legal troubles. And his camp, you know, again, blames the government for sort of pursuing him through the courts. Of course, the government denies any wrongdoing of this sort. But it's fair to say that many, many Senegalese are viewing this with huge scepticism. And that's why we're already seeing these very angry protests in the street. Senegalese think other things are going on. You know, one theory is that he's worried that his prime minister, Amadou Ba, who had been nominated and backed by Macky Sall to be the, the presidential candidate, might actually lose now. And so he's trying to delay the election and to find someone else who can kind of protect his legacy or, or perhaps more cynically protect him. Another theory, which has got plenty of supporters in Senegal, is that he's just trying to cling to power himself, that this is, in a way, a reverse of his promise not to hold on, and that he may even at some point go back on his word not to run for a third term whenever these elections do happen. He's denied that again, we should say. 
But at this stage, with a president who's now going to be overstaying in office, fewer and fewer people are willing to take him at his word. And as you say, this is a surprising thing in what is normally regarded as a a really stable country in that part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I sat down and interviewed President Macky Sall not not long ago, and he really bristled at at the suggestion I made that there'd been some democratic backsliding in in Senegal on his watch. He told me there that Senegal has no lessons to take in democracy from anyone. But, you know, thinking back to the interview now, there were also a few kind of peculiar hints. I mean, I, I said to him just after he had declined and publicly said, I'm not running for a third term, I said, would you like to see others in the region, you know, learn from your example and, and follow suit and step down? And he didn't seize the opportunity to tell everyone, yes, everyone should be like me. He kind of said, oh, well, you know, democracy varies by country and uh, it's, it's up to their sovereign decisions. And perhaps, you know, we're seeing an echo of that uh, with everything that's happening now. And you were asking him in the context of a region where coups are all too common, I suppose. I mean, how does uh, what may be going on in Senegal here fit into that wider picture? Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, Senegal and and President Macky Sall have played a really leading role in trying to persuade plenty of the hunters in the wider region to go back to democracy in a hurry. And those claims, which were already struggling to sort of be heard, you know, are now just far, far less credible. There's no doubt that many people who support the coups in Mali and in Burkina Faso and Niger will be looking at Senegal now and sort of saying, you know, they're hypocrites. They come and tell us to go back to democracy, but they can't even organize an on-time election themselves and they've got an overstaying president. And they will say it's just as bad. But for the moment, as you say, there is plenty of unrest. Plenty of people don't like the look of this inside Senegal. What do you reckon happens next? We already saw protests breaking out, you know, clashes with police firing tear gas back yesterday. And I'm afraid you know, it seems hard to imagine there won't be really serious protests again now. There is going to be a lot of anger at this postponement. And some people are, are worried about things taking a kind of an even darker turn. A full-blown military coup, a military takeover has really been unthinkable in Senegal. It's never happened before here. But in light of the events of of the last few days, you know, one Amnesty International researcher wrote that if the army takes over tonight, it will be the president's fault. Kinley, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. Through December and January, some 400,000 users on Facebook were peppered with ads featuring, of all people, Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. One version even featured a backdrop meant to look like a BBC newscast. These videos depicted Mr Sunak endorsing an app said to be developed with the tech mogul Elon Musk that would help viewers make money on the stock market. But the videos were entirely fake, created using generative AI. The video appeared convincingly real, raising concerns about the spread of misinformation. According to reports, this is the first widespread paid promotion of a deep fake video of a UK political figure. 
funding for these misleading ads. There's been a widespread rise in the use of the deepfake video. Do you think you have what it takes to be able to tell the difference? AI is getting incredibly good at generating realistic images, realistic videos, realistic audio. It's getting pretty much impossible now for humans or machines even to tell the difference between real and AI-generated content. Abby Bertix is a science correspondent for The Economist. People are going to have to be a lot more careful about the information that they consume and looking at where it comes from because you're not going to be able to just gut check an image and know whether it's real or fake. Or do you think that you can tell the difference between AI-generated and human-generated images? So I actually thought I could, but these pictures you've got in front of me, I have absolutely no idea which ones are real and which ones are deep fakes. They literally just all look like different kinds of people. Yeah, I, I, apparently I can't. This set of images is taken from a paper that was published in 2023 about how AI-generated images are actually more human-looking in some cases than humans are, which is a little weird to think about. How about the lady in the upper left-hand corner? What do you think? The woman on the top left with brown hair and black, thick-framed glasses um, looks pretty normal to me. I think she's real. Um, I think the guy underneath her is fake, though. Uh, No, but wrong on both counts. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the lady on the upper left is AI-generated, and the man on the bottom left is a real human being. Sorry, man. Interesting. So. Interesting. Okay, I um, I no longer trust my own instincts. So, Abby, we mentioned the videos of Rishi Sunak earlier, but this isn't just a problem for politicians, is it? No, so politicians and public figures are definitely the ones who are most susceptible right now just because there is a lot of data out there about their voice, their actions, their face. So politicians are being deepfaked, and so are celebrities, like Taylor Swift. Searches for Taylor Swift on Twitter have been blocked following the social media site being flooded with AI-generated explicit images of the singer over the weekend. The deepfake sparked outrage with fans and lawmakers. So this incident with Taylor Swift prompted outrage and concern from government officials even. It's becoming increasingly straightforward to take a couple of images of somebody from a Facebook profile or Instagram account and make this kind of deep fake. In June of 2023, the FBI warned the public of malicious actors using AI to create fake sexually themed videos and images of ordinary people in order to extort money. So this is a very nefarious example, but it highlights how many potential harms and threats there are when it comes to deep fakes. How is detecting deep fakes supposed to work? We've historically relied on little cues to know whether or not something is real or faked, right? Like hands used to be a dead giveaway. Like AI models just couldn't get hands, right? It'd be this weird like talon-shaped claw. There might be six fingers. There might be four. There might be three thumbs. You know, like they just weren't able to get hands. And I've heard recently that earlobes are another giveaway. I'm not entirely sure what that is supposed to mean. But AI models are getting better and better at getting those details right. Then the next step would be relying on an algorithm or some machine learning model to tell the difference. There's a slew of firms, there's startups, tech giants such as Intel and Microsoft, and they're all working on software to try to spot AI-generated media. The thought is that even if human eyes aren't able to tell the difference between a machine-generated image and a human-generated one, that maybe AI models themselves could, or there could be another kind of algorithm to tease apart the two. So another way to kind of make 
the detection easier would be to embed watermarks in AI-generated content. This watermarking isn't the kind that you see on documents that's visible to the human eye, but it's visible to machines. So the AI model will generate content, and as it's generating content, it'll also imprint, like a fingerprint, on that. However, if you have access to an open-source image generation model, you can essentially remove it. So it makes them useful in a lot of cases, but it makes them defeatable. But Abby, for the people who are on the ground doing this kind of research, what do they have to say about this? So I actually attended an AI conference called NeurIPS in December, and I conducted a little straw poll. I asked 23 different people whether they thought generation or detection would win in the end, and 17 of 23 thought that AI-generated media would become eventually completely undetectable, like no way to know whether it's AI or human. One person believed that reliable detection would be possible, and then there were five others who politely refused to answer my question due to scientific principles. They were like, oh, that's an empirical question. We're going to have to wait and see, which is a classic scientist move. Abby, if 17 of the 23 people you asked said that they figured that deep fakes would become completely undetectable, I think that's quite worrying. As we've said on this show, this year is the biggest for global democracy in human history. And with so many elections coming up, the timing of these developments in deep fakes feels very unsettling. Yeah, it's a little concerning, although... I don't think it's as concerning as we think it is because the bottleneck really hasn't been in creating the content, it's in distributing it. What's different now is that you're going to be able to produce them at scale. And what's different now is that they're so, so, so incredibly convincing. It kind of changes whether you can 100% for sure know whether something's right or not just based on the content alone. You're going to have to look more at who is publishing it, who has shared it, where it came from, rather than what it is. Consider my mind officially boggled. I may never trust my own instincts again. Abby, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ori. Tech companies are even starting to use AI to simulate the personalities of the dead. In a recent episode of our new show, The Weekend Intelligence, Abby discovered what it would be like to generate a digital ghost of her own. To hear it, sign up to Economist Podcast Plus. And just for this month, it's 50% off an annual or two-year subscription. That's a little over $2 a month. For that, you'll also get access to special limited series like Boss Class and all our weekly podcasts on business, China, American politics, science and technology, the list goes on. Now, let's get back to business. I love absolutely everything about this club. I love everything about the city. I love everything about our supporters. I love the team. Jurgen Klopp is the much-loved manager of Liverpool Football Club, and he, to great surprise, announced that he was going to leave his job at the end of this season. Andrew Palmer is the Britain editor at The Economist and the presenter of Boss Class. I'm absolutely fine now. But I know that I cannot do the job again and again and again and again. That caused grown men to cry, football fans to lose their composure. Everyone's shocked, mate. It's just like, to announce this halfway through the season, it's like, what is going on? 
But the reason it was interesting to me was that he said he was leaving because he was running out of energy. And energy is a kind of superpower that runs through leaders of all sorts of organizations. There isn't a direct line from football managers to managers in companies, but there is a connecting thread, which is that it is important to have energy in order to do the job well. Andrew, is this a common reason why people leave big leadership roles? It might be, but people don't admit it. So it's very rare for people who are high profile and leading organisations to say publicly that they're running out of juice. And there are some examples. So Jacinda Ardern, former Prime Minister of New Zealand, said that she didn't have anything left in the tank when she stopped uh, being Prime Minister last year. There are a couple of examples of chief executives who've said that they're kind of losing energy and have left for that reason. Jeff Kindler, the boss of Pfizer, a giant drugs company, resigned in 2010, saying that he didn't have much left in terms of energy too. So it does happen, but it's very rare. Now, you did a whole series on how to be a good boss, boss class. How important is energy here? I think it's really important. It doesn't come up a lot, but if you hear people talk about the lives that they lead, it is really noticeable that it's punishing physically. These are people who get up stupidly early, get on the peloton, then clear their email, then do a full day's work, then maybe spend some time with their family, then go back to work again, and they're running half marathons at the weekend. So these are very, very high-energy people by definition, and they're also very conscious of it. So one of the people we spoke to in the podcast was the boss of GSK, and she would talk about how she had to carry herself through meetings with members of staff. You know, it was very, very self-conscious about not displaying a lack of energy, not sort of dripping coffee down her top was how she put it. So how you come across was really, really top of mind for her. Now, I've had absolutely zero experience being a CEO. But tell me, why is interacting with people and going to meetings so draining? So the boss has got two jobs, right? I mean, they've got to lead internally. They're also the face of a company to a whole bunch of external stakeholders. So they've got to meet investors. They've got to glad hand the board. There might be trade unions involved, all sorts of people who kind of want a a piece of them. So think about constantly being in the spotlight and your time constantly being demanded. So there's some research which looks at how a CEO's day gets split up. And it shows that 70% of their time is spent interacting with other people. Now, if you're a an extrovert, that's probably fine. If you're an introvert, that's going to be extremely draining. But in either case, you're always on display. You're always there with people looking at you. And that in itself is exhausting. And it's not just the introverts that find it exhausting, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it is physically taxing on its own. There are certain people who probably have a kind of biological makeup that makes them more likely to cope with that kind of pressure. But others, more normal people, perhaps like you, Ori, definitely like me, find it tough to maintain their rhythm day in, day out. It's particularly hard if you've got other calls on your time. So if you are in a household and you kind of bear the brunt of the chores and the childcare, so women, basically, you've got other things which are demanding energy as well as the job. There are doubtless some kinds of people who just are built for a kind of intense lifestyle, the mitochondrial CEO who can get by with three or four hours of sleep. Some of us are not so crazy and prefer seven to eight hours of sleep. What can we do to re-energize? 
I guess being self-conscious about what a punishing schedule means for your energy and how you re-energize. So some people keep diaries of, you know, through the week, what is it that feels draining? What is it that feels animating? And they organize their time. Some people definitely prioritize their sleep. So there's a bit of a myth that CEOs get less sleep than ordinary folk. In fact, the research seems to suggest the reverse, that senior executives sleep for longer than non-executives. So I think sort of understanding that and then prioritizing sleep, you know, it may be that you want an afternoon nap. It may be that you want to protect your calendar. Jeff Bezos, who used to run Amazon, would famously not take meetings before 10 a.m. so that he'd have time to kind of putter about and think about things. So self-consciousness, as ever, is part of the recipe. I think the Klopp resignation just is a reminder that bosses have hard punishing schedules. There's another famous football manager, Sir Alex Ferguson, who used to manage Manchester United, who had this great aphorism that hard work is a talent. But hard work is also just hard. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, sorry. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.